So welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this national telebriefing to update the public on the status of the Trump administration's nuclear and coal bailout proposal. I am Tim Judson, the Executive Director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, which is hosting the briefing. We're pleased that so many of you could be here tonight. Uh, this is our third year providing these quarterly briefings to provide people in the U.S. and around the world with in-depth information on urgent issues relating to nuclear power, sustainable energy, radioactive waste, and the public health risks of radiation. These briefings are all open to the public for anyone to attend. And while we primarily invite people to attend these briefings through the email list of our supporters and followers on social media, we encourage you to spread the word to anyone you think would be interested in the topics our briefings cover. For those of you not familiar with MIRS, we're the primary national information and resource center for the anti-nuclear and safe energy movement in the U.S. For 39 years, we have worked to end the use of nuclear power in the United States um, and for technically sound and environmentally just solutions for radioactive waste and for a transition to 100% renewable, carbon-free, nuclear-free energy system. We provide support to grassroots activists and local campaigns, and we serve as a watchdog in Washington, D.C., leading campaigns on national policy issues such as nuclear waste and tonight's topic, subsidies for nuclear reactors. We also work with the international movement to stop the spread of nuclear power and uranium mining, and, and we'll be with the, the Don't Nuke the Climate campaign at the United Nations Climate Conference in Bonn, Germany next week. To be successful, we need your support, uh, both by taking action on the issues and, just as importantly, through whatever financial support you can provide to our work. If you feel NIRS's work is important, please consider making a contribution. Uh, right now, we're in the midst of a major crowdfunding campaign for the Don't Nuke the Climate effort to stop the nuclear industry from undermining climate action and turning the Green Climate Fund into a global nuclear bailout fund. Just as NIRS does in the United States, we are planning actions and informational events in Germany, lobbying climate delegations, and bringing the voices of communities affected by nuclear power to the table, so global leaders know that nuclear power is no solution to climate change. If you would like to support this effort, uh, please vis visit the Don't Nuke the Climate website uh, at www.don't-nuke-the-climate.org. So, uh, in a moment, I'll, I'll introduce tonight's estimable, pre estimable presenter, Amory Levins. But first, I have a few instructions on how we'll handle, qu handle questions and answers because I know we're going to have a lot of them. Uh, so because of the large number of participants tonight, everyone has been muted. I'm going to ask uh, Amory some questions, and we'll have a discussion about tonight's topic. And not to worry, Amory will do most of the talking. Uh, at the end of the discussion, we'll have 30 to 40 minutes for Q&A, um, and at that time, I'll advise you, uh, that, you know, to ask a question. You'll just dial star six on your, on your phone. And then when prompted, uh, press, press the number one, and you'll be added to the queue. I'll repeat these instructions later. Um, but when it's your turn, you'll be notified that you are unmuted and you can ask your question. So, um, so on with our program. Uh, so one year ago today, NIRS published a report estimating the cost of a national nuclear bailout. Uh, we drafted the report on the heels of a $7.6 billion nuclear subsidy adopted by New York State as talk of a national nuclear subsidy was getting louder. Our report, uh, Too Big to Be Allowed, was intended uh, to raise awareness of the looming possibility of new subsidies for old reactors. The closure of six reactors since 2013 and plans to close even more, as well as the closures of hundreds of coal plants, have led to a slew of appeals from power companies for subsidies and bailouts to shore up their bottom lines. As you have no doubt heard, President Trump has issued a proposal that would effectively bail out much of the nuclear and coal energy industries to make good on one of his major campaign promises. Uh, 
And on September 29th, U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry issued a letter to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, to set new rules for how nuclear and coal power plants in the country's four major competitive energy markets, covering about 100 power plants in the Northeast and Midwest, including 43 of the 99 reactors now operating. This plan seems to be moving very fast, and it could have major implications, not just for nuclear and coal, but for our entire energy policy. So because of the enormity of this situation, we thought it would be especially important to give the public an opportunity to hear from one of the world's foremost energy experts and have a chance to ask your own questions. We are so lucky to have Dr. Amory Levins of Rocky Mountain Institute and an energy advisor to world leaders from President Jimmy Carter to governments in over 65 countries. Welcome, Amory, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. I've actually been active in <laughs> something like 60-odd countries, but haven't advised the national government in all of them, just for the record. Well, fair enough. It's very humble of you to correct me. Um, so uh, I guess to kind of kick things off, um, Amory, you know, Energy, Energy Secretary Perry's proposal to bail out nuclear and coal seems, you know, like such a throwback to the 1970s and that era when the U.S. Uh, was investing heavily in building these same nuclear reactors and coal-fired plants that would be subsidized now. What shaped your approach to energy back then, and how does the world look to you today? Well, in the 70s, till 76, the, the view was uh, that the energy problem was simply where to get more energy, more of any kind from any source at any price, and uh, more and more of it from electricity generated in uh, gigawatt-scale central plants, and then pushed out through the grid. Um, it was a very supply-centric view, uh, vestiges of which evidently survived in crannies and caves and uh, occasionally reassert themselves. Uh, but most of the energy industries realized, when I put it in Foreign Affairs Fall 76, that actually there's a different way to ask the question that yields a very different answer and better foresight. That's to start by asking, what do you want energy for? What are you trying to do with it? Uh, and how much energy of what kind, at, at what uh, scale, from what source, uh, will do each job in the cheapest way? That's called the end-use-least-cost approach. There was a furious argument for a year or so about that, huge Senate hearing record uh, and uh, many, uh, I think, three dozen tedious responses to <laughs> fatuous critiques. But when the dust had settled, I think most sensible folks realized this was a, a better question and uh, it, it, it would actually help you see what was going to happen because you could then ask, well, what if people wanting to keep warm in the winter uh, could could choose between not just heating with electricity versus gas versus oil, uh, but also how about insulation and weather stripping? Uh, and, and that that paper turned out, according to a, an independent scholarly review done later, to have the only accurate foresight in the literature. Although I, I think there was one more about uh, 
how much energy the U.S. would need in 2000. Got that right within a few percent. Um, in the last but one issue of Rocky Mountain Institute Solutions Journal, uh, I did a little 40-year retrospective on that paper to show what worked, what didn't work, what lessons should be learned or should have been learned, uh, because the renewable part of the so-called soft energy path was held up by a quarter century, and only in the past decade has really started to uh, follow the uh, rapid growth trajectory that it it could have all along, uh, but was held back by a variety of uh, policy uh, uh, interferences and a few other accidents. But it, it's now definitely taking off uh, about 55% of the world's new capacity added last last year was uh, modern renewables, that is all renewables minus big hydro. And uh, in the U.S. it's uh, lately well over half as well and even higher in Europe, upwards of two-thirds. Um, and actually the leader in that transformation is China, where we've had the honor to uh, help the government reframe its energy policy around efficiency of renewables. So if you go to rmi.org and look up reinventing fire colon China, you'll find interesting reading about that, and uh, it's, it's well reflected in China's current strategic plan called the 13th Five-Year Plan. Uh, my, my view of energy, as of everything else, keeps evolving, uh, and I think the impression that there is immense potential to wring more work out of our energy, and that's generally the cheapest, fastest resource to use, has been a good bet. Uh, actually, the U.S. since 75 has gotten at least 30 times as much uh, energy service uh, growth cumulatively provided by savings, two-thirds or so through technical efficiency gains, as from all the growth in renewables, exciting though that has been. The ratio of headlines has been the opposite because the, the uh, renewables you can see on the rooftop or the skyline, but the energy you don't use is invisible. Uh, and this is driven uh, very largely by market forces, uh, which act at every level in our society, in every sector. The best buys tend to win. Uh, there have been important policies as well, uh, everything from decoupling and shared savings for utilities in, I'm told now, 16 states for electricity, at least 20 for gas, uh, to uh, appliance efficiency standards, building efficiency standards. Uh, but I think the engine driving the efficiency of renewables revolution is very much uh, investors looking for better returns at lower risk, providers wanting to provide better service at lower cost, customers looking for the best buys. And if, if anything, my uh, tentative in 76 embrace of markets as the major driving force in this transformation 
uh, has become very much stronger as I've seen how remarkably well markets work uh, despite all the efforts to distort or bypass them, such as the new proposal by Secretary Perry that you mentioned. Henry, can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think for a lot of folks, um, you know, who aren't, you know, so 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 deeply, you know, sort of steeped in, you know, in energy policy and, and, and energy economics, um, you know, the whole sort of concept of energy markets can seem a little, uh, you know, sort of alien and, and confusing, and you know, and and sort of, you know, uh, kind of ring up, you know, or kind of recall, uh, you know, things like the stock market crash in 2008 and and the vulnerability of markets to major failures. You know, what, what's your what, what's your take on um, you know the the role and the significance of, of, of energy markets in you know, well, in, in, we're talking in this context uh, in your nuclear context about electricity rather than energy in general. The sure. volatility and vulnerability of markets is still very much there for fuels, particularly oil, as we all know from its wild gyrations in price, and uh, also for natural gas, which is probably even more volatile. There's lately been a lot of volatility even in coal price. Uh, whereas efficiency and renewables, once you buy them, have a fixed price that's constant for decades and you contract for it in advance if you want. The markets we're talking about uh, tonight, though, are for electricity. Uh, the, the traditional way to uh, form the prices of, re of electricity that you pay at your retail meter uh, is to have a, a vertically integrated utility regulated by a state elected or appointed commission that decides uh, how much revenue your provider, traditionally utility, should get, say, next year, uh, and then divvies it up among different classes of customers and sets prices accordingly based on forecast sales. Uh, there's a reform these 16 states have now done called decoupling and shared savings, which removes the resulting incentive to sell you more energy, because then you'd make more money as a utility, and substitutes an incentive for cutting your bills, because then the utility can uh, get part of that saving as extra profit. So they have an incentive to do what's cheapest for the customer. Now, the, the rate setting, or, or economists would say price setting, uh, is traditionally done by state utility commissions. And that's an adversarial system where uh, a bunch of lawyers argue for a long time about what's the right number, and the commission makes a decision based on, we hope, all the facts, including political facts. Uh, however, now in about two-thirds of the country, uh, wholesale prices for electricity are set uh, in competitive markets where suppliers bid against each other, and in many of those markets, efficiency and demand response about when you use electricity also get to compete directly, and they generally win against supply because they're even cheaper. Uh, <clears throat> the, the bidding is done in regional power pools run by an alphabet soup of things called ISOs 
uh, independent system operators, RTOs, regional transmission organizations, and so on. Uh, but the, the the basic mechanism is that some time, like a day ahead, and then fine-tuned down to even five minutes ahead, uh, anybody who wants to meet a forecast demand bids a price, uh, and uh, the the price that everybody gets in that market is set by the last bid to be accepted in order for supply and demand uh, to balance. Uh, and this turns out to be a very effective and efficient way when properly managed to get the cheapest electricity according to the 1992 uh, mandate to the electricity system by, by Congress to come up with wholesale competition. And what uh, it, this system has evolved actually over about four decades. It is highly refined. In some markets like uh, the, the ERCOT power pool around Texas, it's just about energy prices. In some others like PJM, the mid-Atlantic pool that reaches into the Midwest, about 13 states in DC, uh, they also may have a capacity market uh, that rewards uh, providers for being able to generate electricity at need or savings where those get to compete. Uh, and there are, there are increasing trends to reward other so-called ancillary services that enable the grid to run reliably, uh, such as the ability to ramp, that is, change uh, generation or savings uh, often rather quickly, uh, and ability to stabilize voltage and frequency. Those uh, are the three vital attributes of uh, keeping the grid operating stably. Uh, and one would expect that a Secretary of Energy concerned about the reliability and resilience, which he doesn't define, of power supply uh, would be interested in uh, promoting technology-neutral market mechanisms for eliciting and rewarding uh, provision of those uh, those attributes that reliability needs. However, Secretary Perry did something completely different that I think surprised practically all observers and pleased only the coal and nuclear beneficiaries he had in mind, but been roundly opposed by uh, the rest of the energy industries, the public power uh, movement, the uh, uh, that's that's a good chunk of the electricity industry as well. The major electricity customers, uh, the environmental groups, uh, because basically it would blow up markets and substitute uh, administrative choice of preferred fuels, which he would like to be coal and nuclear, uh, to the detriment of customers and of all other competitors. Uh, that's a complete dizzying, rapid reversal of what the industry has and, and the regulators have been building up for four decades. Um, 
and uh, it should be of deep concern to everybody concerned with, uh, or everybody interested in, in getting affordable, reliant, resilient supplies of electricity. Uh, I filed on behalf of Rocky Mountain Institute 23 October uh, some comments to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, which we will be publicizing more in the coming days and posting at rmi.org, but they are up at the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission website, ferc.gov, FERC.gov. Uh, and there were, I believe, over 600, I, I may be way off on that, it may be a lot more than that, comments submitted. Uh, practically everybody weighed in. There's now a reply period going till I think November 7th and then the Commission is supposed to make a decision. Bear in mind however that although Secretary Perry uh, framed his putting his proposal on FERC's agenda as he has legal authority to do as a command to decide it in a particular way, he actually has no authority whatever to command FERC. It's by law an independent regulatory agency and they could perfectly well reject his proposal or modify it. Uh, I would expect it will be difficult for the secretary to garner three votes or two, two votes out of three for his proposal. It's actually a five-member commission, but Senator Inhofe is holding up two more nominations, one from each party. Uh, and uh, two of the three sitting commissioners are uh, very strongly on record for a long time as favoring orderly, thoughtful market design rather than picking winners, picking fuels, uh, and uh, the other things in that, that are that define the secretary's radical proposal. Uh, I also think if FERC did uh, unexpectedly approve the proposal it would be very likely to be struck down in the courts. There, There is no uh, legal basis for such a decision. There's no evidentiary record that could rationally support it. Uh, but it's a serious threat to the proper operation of the electricity system. And my comments showed it would actually undermine national security harm grid reliability and resilience and thus do the opposite of what the secretary says he intends. Can you kind of walk us through that a bit? Um, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, how, you know, under the auspices of proposing something for national security, how, you know, how would, how would, how would Secretary Perry's proposal undermine it? Well, his proposal is to rate base, uh, that is provide a guaranteed, um, opportunity to earn, but in this case it isn't even an opportunity, a guaranteed return in his his uh, conception uh, of an on-capital plus reasonable operating expenses for any um, not state regulated power plant that has at least 90 days of fuel on hand, a, a, propo a, 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 a concept that was previously unknown when he first started using that phrase and now he calls it fuel secure uh, generators uh, back in April. I did a Google search and you couldn't find a single hit uh, 
on fuel on hand in, in this context. It was a concept he simply made up uh, in order to create a new class of power plant consisting of coal and nuclear uh, so that he could figure out a way to uh, charge customers more for those, pay them more money, and therefore retard or prevent the retirement of those typically old and certainly obsolete and often uneconomic power plants. His rationale was that uh, the, there's a serious problem, supposedly, of uh, interruptions to fuel supply to, to power plants and that having a big pile of coal uh, by your coal-fired power plant or a lot of uranium inventory not yet fissioned in your nuclear power plant would protect you from what were implied to be serious uh, uh, vulnerabilities in the gas pipeline system that runs gas-fired power plants like modern combined cycle plants, as well as unstated but clearly implied the supposed unreliability of renewable supply. Well, there are several things wrong with this thesis. First, uh, about 98 or 99 percent, and by any reckoning something in the high 90s of percent of power failures actually originate in the wires, in the grid, rather than from lack of generation. Uh, you see this illustrated in Puerto Rico right now, where there's plenty of generating capacity, there's plenty of fuel to run it, but there's no wires to deliver it to most of the customers because the winds, the storm knocked, it, knocked the wires down. That's what normally happens in severe weather. And the secretary tries by very selective uh, cherry-picking of evidence to make a case that uh, that coal and nuclear plants were highly reliable in, say, the polar vortex event, uh, while gas plants were not. Actually, there were more technical failures uh, per megawatt and in total in the gas plants in the grid he's talking about, PJM, uh, than in, excuse me, there were more more technical failures in the in the coal plants than in the gas plants because a lot of the coal plants simply froze up. They wouldn't start or their coal piles were frozen or their coal conveyors were frozen. Uh, gas can freeze too. I'm not saying gas has no vulnerabilities, but what he was calling a fuel supply vulnerability was largely a contractual issue in New England in particular in the Northeast where uh, the utilities in general did not have firm delivery contracts to move the gas to their power plants. Uh, uh, buildings get get gas priority over power plants, and there was a shortage of delivery, not capacity, but contractual capacity. It was a it was a method a problem of purchasing uh, language in the contracts rather than lack of physical capacity, and it is now largely fixed and will soon be wholly fixed because obviously the uh, need to curtail gas plants and substitute other resources uh, was a, a big concern to those utilities. That said, they did not have to uh, uh, involuntarily uh, cut off any customers. Uh, there were some customers, mainly big industries, who had volunteered in advance 
to uh, drop their loads in a power emergency, and they were rewarded for doing that. And some of that resource was used, uh, demand response, a quarter gigawatt of it was left unused. Uh, but it, it's really uh, incorrect to present this as a vulnerability to the gas system. And in fact, a, a, uh, an expert at the Nevada uh, Commission has recently reviewed gas versus electric grid vulnerabilities and found that historically the gas grid is a good deal more reliable than the electric grid. There are really basic reasons for this. Gas pipelines are generally underground. Uh, they are richly interconnected. They have, in general, more redundancy than the electric grid does. The electric grid's almost all up in the air, subject to weather and uh, birds and falling tree limbs and uh, rifle bullets and every other insult. And of course, gas uh, is, a, is pressurized inside pipes. Uh, it has over 400 storage depots underground in general, uh, scattered nicely around the system. And things change fairly slowly in the gas system. If you start to lose pressure, you have uh, hours or days to fix it, whereas electricity has to, the alternating current has to be precisely synchronized across half a continent to like a thousandth of a second continuously, or the grid fails and things turn off and the lights go out. Uh, <clears throat> so, first problem then with Secretary Perry's proposal is that it perpetuates and would heavily subsidize dependence on those long power lines that are the most vulnerable part of the electricity system. Uh, second, that it perpetuates <clears throat> reliance on uneconomic power plants that have serious vulnerabilities of their own. The uh, vulnerability in the coal plants is partly in the plants themselves, and no matter how big your coal pile is, if it's frozen, uh, or its conveyor doesn't work because of freezing weather, for example, uh, and you can't load it, that really doesn't do you any good. It turns out nuclear plants have a half dozen vulnerabilities of their own, that some of which are obvious, like sometimes they have to shut down in a heat wave because they can't get enough cool enough cooling water. But there are some other features that are not so well known, and one of them became obvious in the August 2003 uh, Northeast blackout, uh, which at the start had 7.85 gigawatts, nine units of nuclear in the US running perfectly at 100% output. But when the grid fails, uh, by NRC rule and good engineering practice, those plants are instantly shut down automatically. It's called a scram uh, because without the grid to power their uh, cooling systems, for example, uh, they would rely entirely on on-site diesel generators, which are not terribly reliable uh, to prevent a, a meltdown or other serious mishap. So they suddenly went from 7.8 odd gigawatts to zero. And the first three days of recovery, they could only put out two and a half 
uh, sorry, 5% of their, well, it went up to 5%, 2.5% on average of their rated output. Over five days, uh, they got up to 17.5%. Uh, oh, Over a week, uh, they got up to 40-odd uh, percent. And it took actually two weeks to get them fully restored. Why was that? Because when you suddenly shut down a reactor, some neutron sponge, uh, neutron absorbing fission products, especially species of xenon and samarium uh, uh, that are in the core as a result of normal operation, build up uh, and uh, then you don't have enough spare neutrons to restart the chain reaction and run it stably with um, equal neutron flux through the core uh, until that stuff decays. So you might think of nuclear plants as anti-peakers, that is they are guaranteed unavailable when you most need them in the, in the first few days after uh, a blackout. Uh, and then when you look closer at the reliability characteristics of different resources on the grid, you find that efficiency, demand response, and modern renewables are extraordinarily reliable. Uh, wind and solar break, that is they're out of service for technical failure, uh, typically less than one or at most two percent of the time compared with roughly 10 or 12 percent for coal and nuclear plants. <clears throat> to which, of course, someone will reply, well, uh, the capacity factors of wind and solar are much lower than coal and nuclear because fairly often uh, the sun is on the other side of the earth or it's cloudy or the wind isn't blowing. Well, actually, those are attributes of a particular generator in a particular place. But the way you actually run the grid is that all generators serve the grid and the grid serves the loads. You don't have a single generator hooked to a single load. And you diversify the supply by type and by location. The whole reason we built the grid is that there is no such thing as a 24-7 power plant. They all break. And when a big, say, coal or nuclear plant breaks, you just lost typically 1,000 megawatts or so in milliseconds, often without warning, often for weeks or months. But when you analyze the data, you find that a diversified portfolio of modern renewables doesn't do that at all. It doesn't have that ungraceful failure mode. Uh, <clears throat> because if the wind isn't blowing in one place, it is in another. Often wind and solar are complementary. And actually, you can predict the output of both wind and solar generators at least as accurately as you can forecast demand, often more so. Uh, therefore, the firm supply and the degree of reliability you get from a modern portfolio of renewables properly designed and run uh, is is uh, going to compare very fair, favorably with what you get from coal and nuclear plants that can and do suffer uh, widespread failures 
often from common causes like a polar vortex or a hurricane. Uh, and when they fail, uh, it's kind of like the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Uh, and they tend to be out for longer. There are many instances we documented where uh, grids were supported during such failures of traditional generators, fossil fueled and nuclear. They were supported instead uh, by the demand side resources uh, like demand response and efficiency and by modern renewables and that's what kept the lights on. Uh, so I think the secretary has it exactly backwards. Uh, his, his approach would maximize dependence on long-distance transmission, uh, <clears throat> on remote resources, and on uh, specifically vulnerable coal and nuclear generators, uh, <clears throat> while uh, disadvantaging the renewable and demand-side resources that are more resilient, more reliable, and actually have the option of being next to the customer. So if almost all power failures originate in the grid, uh, you would really want for resilience to rely on as short a haul as you can, not hundreds of miles for the electrons you're using coming from a giant plant far away, but rather you'd, you'd want to focus on stuff that's in your community or right down the street or right on your roof. So there's no wires. That's a, a much better approach, but that's not one the secretary seems to uh, count as a resilience option. And modern renewables are specifically excluded uh, from counting in, in his scheme as meriting support because they can't have 90 days fuel on hand because they have no fuel. I would have thought that was an advantage if you think the problem is interruptions of fuel supply, but he apparently thinks the solution to that is just to stockpile more fuel, uh, rather, in other words, to, uh, to intensify fuel inventories rather than make them unnecessary. So his, his proposal, in short, is a non-solution to a non-problem. Uh, fuel interruptions to power plants, if you look at the statistics, are on the order of a million or 10 million times less important than wires going down. But he doesn't talk at all about that problem. Uh, and I think any serious approach to resilience has to start with an efficient, diverse, distributed, renewable uh, electricity use and supply system that starts with the customer uh, and works up from there. That is, of course, the approach that the Pentagon uses uh, to get resilient power supply to its bases. For mission continuity, our military needs its stuff to work. Of course, so do the rest of us whom they're defending. And it's ironic that actually many utilities prohibit customers from using a national industry consensus standard written into federal law uh, 12 years ago that will automatically keep your critical loads working from solar on your roof in the daytime and even at night if you have batteries. Uh, that is the standard and the approach the Pentagon uses for reliability on its bases, and yet many utilities don't allow customers to use it. <clears throat> 
even though it keeps the line workers just as safe. <clears throat> so that's that's something we need to fix at a state and utility level. Yeah, fascinating that the military has more secure energy supply than the rest of us do. Well, of course they they need their stuff to work. So do all <laughs> of us. And and uh, I think let me give you a simple example. I gave a talk a few years ago at a, a brand new gorgeous convention center in North Carolina. They had hundreds of kilowatts of state-of-the-art solar power on the roof. I noticed a little sign that said um, tornado shelter. I asked, what's that about? I was told, well, the underground parking garage for this convention center is the downtown tornado shelter. I said, will the lights be on in that center, at least in the daytime, preferably all the time, uh, once the tornado has taken down the wires? They said, uh, no. I asked, why not? They said, oh, well, uh, because our utility has a rule against activating that resilient feature that's built into our modern inverters. So the head of the commission turned to the utility rep and said, why is that? Didn't get an answer and said very sweetly, well, let me help you find out. Now I need to go back and see what happened. But I think we need to be having that conversation all over the country uh, it's a simple public safety issue. And there's one more thing we ought to be doing that I think people on this call could start asking for. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you may have noticed that in Texas and Florida and other places lately afflicted by storms, and back at the time of Superstorm Sandy as well, people couldn't pump gasoline when the grid went down. Now, a couple of decades ago, Gasoline pumps at, at filling stations had a hole in the side. You could stick a crank in it, and if you had a straw garb, you could pump as much gas as you wanted if the, if the power failed. Now we don't have those anymore. Um, we have digital pump heads that have a submerged gasoline pump down in the tank, hardwired to the point-of-sale terminal, which also won't work in a power failure and it can't talk to the internet. And then all of that wiring is mixed up with the entire convenience store. So what we ought to be doing is untangling the wiring at the breaker box so you can just run the pump under some kind of emergency manual control and probably the credit cards won't work in a power failure, but you can take cash, you can take IOUs from customers you know. Uh, and uh, you don't need a truck-mounted 20 or 30 kilowatt generator to power up the whole convenience store before you can pump gasoline to diesel. And then first responders, people who have gensets, can get the fuel they need. Let's uncouple our electric vulnerabilities from mobility and genset fuel supply. That's a self-inflicted problem we don't need. And actually... Energy Secretary Charles Duncan in 1980 in West Chicago cut the ribbon on the first solar-powered gas station. It's time that all over the country uh, we got our utilities and gas station owners and operators together to fix that problem uh, and follow the 1980 example after a, uh, let's see, 20, 37-year gap. This is not new technology, it's just new thinking. Sure, maybe then we can turn them into solar car charging stations as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, some, some, uh, some of the oil companies are indeed going that way. 
Well, Amory, th thanks for walking us through that. I mean, I guess one of the one, one of the things that you know that seems um, you know that I, I'm wondering about, and I wonder what your thoughts are, is that you know this this proposal that that Secretary Perry has made and the administration has put forward is so outrageous, and and, and like you've laid out so clearly, seems to be completely baseless in you know in law and in fact. Um, but it didn't come out of nowhere. And we've been seeing more proposals, you know, like this over the last few years, both at the state level and now at the federal level. Um, and some of these have they've, they, you know, some of these have moved forward, and you know, in places like New York and Illinois, where um, where there are you know large nuclear subsidies on the order of ten billion dollars over the next twelve years, you know, being given out. Um, but you know, but uh, but you know, but I think that you know, so what you know, but so I mean, if, if even if even if FERC rejects. Secretary Perry's proposal is, you know, is this the end of the conversation or do you think that there is, I mean, what, what do you see coming after this? <laughs> well, the nuclear industry has been, of course, lobbying very hard uh, on grounds of climate protection and local jobs uh, at the power plants to keep their economically troubled technology going. Let's bear in mind a little history. Uh, the owners were already paid for building those plants. And as, as the Republican former uh, FERC commissioner, Nora Brownell, uh, recently remarked, why, you know, tell me how it's helpful to uh, subsidize something that's already paid for uh, rather than investing in something new that's even better. Uh, so we paid for to build the plants in the first place, and most of the reactors in question are old and already amortized. Then some of the major operators and owners decided they would do better in a competitive than a regulated market because their plants would be so cheap to run. So they insisted on uh, going to the competitive regional markets that we have now, and often they said, ooh, but we have these stranded assets that can't make it in the cold, cruel world of competition. So pay us uh, transition costs. Well, so they got paid a second time. Then they got some power pools like PJM to put in uh, recently capacity payments uh, favoring central power plants that would run many hours uh, and saying, well, that, that's an attribute that ought to be specially rewarded. And this was meant specifically to help coal nuclear plants, but it doesn't seem to have done very well at it. And now they want to be paid a fourth time. Well, naturally, if you own costly assets and you're trying to pay money to your shareholders, you would love to be paid as many times in as many different ways as possible for the same uh, assets. But once is enough. And I think the folks who, who built those plants were already fairly and amply, if not generously, compensated for all the risks they took, including innovation, competition, and regulatory change, especially when they asked for the regulatory change in the first place. So I don't have as much sympathy as, as you might expect uh, for uh, the notion that a a carbon-free in operation, other than a little enrichment uh, resource uh, like nuclear, ought to get bailed out. Uh, and of course, there are local political considerations. But what the uh, owners have done quite adroitly in the two cases you mentioned uh, 
is to try to package a political deal which bypasses markets, bypasses regulation, and goes to political log rolling in uh, legislatures whose uh, members may be influenced by uh, other factors, shall we say, uh, than simply uh, supporting the public interest. Um, the problem with the climate argument is, is worth describing, though, because I think a lot of activists may not be aware of it. The argument is that we already have nuclear plants generating uh, in operation very largely carbon-free electricity. There isn't, of course, you can quibble about the details about the carbon that goes into building and fueling those plants versus building wind or solar. And those are generally a better carbon deal, but not by a great deal. The, the important argument is, are you burning fossil fuel or are you not? However, tracking only carbon misses the point that you also have to track dollars. Now, the reason that, according to Bloomberg, uh, New Energy Finance, half the nuclear fleet is economically distressed, cannot compete in open power markets, uh, and a lot of it is therefore threatened with or slated for shutdown, is they have high operating costs, particularly repairs. It's kind of like owning an old car and it keeps needing more and more stuff and then the transmission goes and you got to bet on, gee, if I fix the transmission, is, is the head gasket going to last long enough for me to get my money back and so on. So as, as our fleet gets older, and it averages, last I looked, uh, 37 years, designed for maybe 30, uh, you have more and more of a challenge of what are called net capital additions. That's major repairs. They're so big you don't expense them, you capitalize them. And it's perfectly possible to have a nuclear plant whose book value goes, uh, or, uh, or, or sorry, who's, that, that has negative depreciation. That is, you're, you're reinvesting in keeping it going more than it's depreciating. Well, when you track the money, you find that the top quartile, the, the most expensive to run 25 nuclear plants in the country, averaged 2010 to 2012, which is the last data the industry's published, cost 6.2 cents a kilowatt hour just to operate. That does not contain any payment uh, of their initial construction cost or its financing. It's just to run it. Well, if, you, if a utility buys electric efficiency in the U.S., it will pay an average of two or three cents to save a kilowatt hour, which means if you close a, an uneconomic to run nuclear plant and buy efficiency with the saved operating cost, you'll get two or three kilowatt hours of savings for every one you're no longer generating. One of those saved kilowatt hours can displace what the plant was doing, and the rest can displace fossil fuel generation. The state regulator could perfectly well tell you to reinvest the saved operating cost in that way. Of course, you can buy efficiency a lot cheaper, and I'm talking in average costs. You can have higher or lower 
nuclear savings uh, of cost. You could have higher or lower efficiency costs. But the general lesson is that uh, you will save at least as much carbon and plausibly a lot more, even twice as much or more, by closing uneconomic nuclear plants and reinvesting in efficiency instead uh, than you would save by continuing to run the nuclear plant. And of course, now that renewables are getting very competitive, they too uh, should enter that conversation. Uh, so I think it's very important that we expect our uh, regulators and our private sector decision makers to track carbon and dollars, not only carbon, uh, because otherwise uh, you will actually end up emitting more carbon by running an uneconomic nuclear plant in these circumstances than you would if you closed it and bought more climate effective solutions that will save more carbon per dollar, a lot more. Uh, and I, I think those numbers just keep getting stronger all the time. We've been making this argument since 1982 in professional journals and such. You will, in general, not see it covered in the press. And the nuclear industry is desperately keen that, uh, that nobody understand this argument. But I hope I've uh, explained it clearly enough uh, that you can get it. And if, if you like, uh, you can look up a uh, paper in the Electricity Journal uh, uh, volume 30, uh, July 2017, pages 22 to 30. It's a paper called, Do Coal and Nuclear Generation Deserve Above Market Prices? And the answer is no. Uh, I went through all 14 uh, magical properties often claimed for nu coal nuclear plants to justify paying them more and found that none of them is real, although actually some of them are real for renewables and efficiency. Great, thanks. Well, you know, I think you know, since we're coming up on 9 o'clock, maybe we should move in uh, to the Q&A. Um, and uh, if that's all right with you, Amory. Sure. And, um, and so, you know, as we're kind of making the transition, I did have one more question I wanted to ask you, which kind of, you know, kind of maybe closes the circle on, on this part of the conversation, uh, which has to do with, you know, sort of what do you think it'll take to break down the, to break down the institutional barriers um, you know, to the transition to renewable energy that we're seeing kind of playing out in these proposals for bailouts and subsidies. And before you answer that, I just want to give everyone the instructions on how to, and how to get in the queue yep. to ask their questions. Um, so everyone, uh, we're going to move to the Q&A, um, you know, as Amory is answering this last question. Um, but I do want to give you the instructions on how you can ask your questions. Um, so just, uh, you know, on, on your, on your uh, phone keypad, just dial star six. And then when prompted, uh, press 1 and you'll be added to the queue. And we're going to move through these, you know, in order of when people, uh, in order of when people get in line. And so when it's your turn, uh, you'll be notified that you're unmuted and you can ask your question. Uh, so I'm going to turn on the Q&A mode now and, and Amory, if you want. Okay. And uh, have, have you also pressed whatever you need to to stop the echo I started to get a minute ago? It was a feedback. Yeah, that was very yeah, odd, good. but I, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so let's see. You asked about institutional barriers to getting on with the energy transition. So in, in broadest terms, uh, we, are, we, we need to move from protecting the old system to enabling the new system. Uh, 
and therefore from an energy transformation whose speed is constrained by the inertias of incumbents to one whose speed is uh, accelerated by the ambitions of insurgents. We've been through transitions like this before in, uh, say, telecommunications and, and many other fields. And it's, it's harder in energy for several reasons. We have very rich and muscular uh, incumbents that are used to having their way. They often own the legislature uh, in, in your state or at least an influential minority shareholding in it. Uh, it's not unusual to have uh, some substantial number of utility lobbyists for each member of a legislature. Uh, some states have issues with the independence of their uh, regulatory commission or its staff or the quality of the staff. Uh, these are problems that will take time to fix. There are some terrific regulators, regulatory staff, uh, legislators I have the honor to, to work with around the country, around the world, who are really trying to get these things right. And I would just um, encourage those of you who, who feel there's politics getting in the way of sound public policy to urge regulators and legislators to follow conservative economic principles. So part of what we need is greater transparency and accountability. Those are political questions. But on the ideological front, you notice that the, the case I'm describing is impeccably rooted in competitive markets. It's not about picking winners, uh, favoring technologies you like over technologies you don't like. It's about letting everybody compete fully and fairly and picking the best buys uh, through a market process. Economics is your friend <laughs> in this argument. And you may find it a dismal science, but it's a really useful one uh, to put in your uh, vocabulary and strategy. Great. All right, so we'll move on to our first question. Uh, unmuting the caller now. This is a 914 area code. Oh, sorry, I had myself muted as well. Um, yes, this is Michelle Lee in, in New York. Uh, thank you so much for this presentation. Um, I have two questions. One is, I, I wonder if you think that the green energy community is sufficiently aware of what's happening with this Doe and, you know, and FERC rules. Um, and the second is, um, I'm, I guess I'm a little confused about how the October 10th FERC notice of proposed rulemaking for the grid resiliency pricing rule um, gels with the one that, that was, that was um, originally due for comments on October 23rd. The, the October 10th one has comments due uh, in late November. Thank you. I'll go on mute. Oh, let's see. I hope I'm going to get this right, and if not, I hope somebody will correct me. Uh, to take the second point first, um, there's a statutory uh, 
comment period, which is longer, but the Commission uh, turned down a request from 11 major uh, uh, organizations all across the energy space, putting uh, Greenies together with the American Petroleum Institute for the first time, uh, uh, and adopted instead the very short uh, and I think illegally abbreviated, but the courts would decide that, timeline that the Secretary had requested. Um, and that's how we ended up with the actual deadline, which already passed on October 23rd. I believe the response deadline is November 7th, and then there's a short decision date after that. They, the Commission will have something like a couple of weeks to uh, evaluate these zillion comments and uh, try to do something wise and defensible and uh, uh, they deserve our sympathy because uh, they've been put in an awkward position. But the the Commission has a long history of disinterested, thoughtful, independent decision-making. That's pretty strong in its culture, and uh, I'm hoping that, that those uh, genes will uh, prove uh, durable. Um, and then your first question, I'm sorry, was about, just a quick reminder, please. Uh, sorry, I think that I think that the, the, the caller has been muted again. Um, oh dear, can you remind me? I'm trying to think back to it. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. Um, maybe we can uh, go to I'm the next so sorry. Call. It's been a long week. Uh, going to the next caller. Uh, this is, uh, and just a reminder to the callers, um, if you put your own phone on mute in addition to the muting that we're doing on our end, um, you might, uh, you, you might want to unmute yourself as well. Hello? Hello? Hi. Yes, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Hi, Amory. This is David Hughes from Citizen Power in Pittsburgh. I was kind of struck yeah. what you said earlier in your presentation when you were pretty high on markets and uh, qualified it by saying if they're properly managed. I'm just curious. We were an organization that opposed deregulation of generation pricing. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, two-part question. One is, Generally, my experience, our experiences with markets, especially in very high need areas, like for example, healthcare comes to mind. Markets don't work very well. Now, I know that they're working very well wholesale-wise through the RTOs, as you said. But one is what could happen over time in terms of them being improperly managed, because you know we don't think electricity is. Uh, should be left up to the marketplace. It's too much of a need for people. And then, secondly, the question part of the question would be, and you know, I don't want to digress from the FERC rule, nope, but uh, this all plays into it. Second part would be, uh, if the things that you think are the result of competitive markets most of them probably could have happened 
under Customs Service regulation anyway. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's that's perfectly true. Thoughtful regulation uh, can yield the same answer, sometimes a better answer. And some states have gotten extremely sophisticated at it. Uh, California comes to mind. Remember that the competitive markets uh, are generally at a wholesale level. Some states uh, also let greater choice flow to the retail level. We're getting an echo. Uh, Somebody is not muted. It should be. Um, But uh, I I don't actually have a strong preference uh, ideologically or practically between uh, well-run markets especially at the wholesale level, and well-run regulation. Either one can work fine. Uh, And on on your first point about improperly managed markets, yeah, it's perfectly possible to have those two, and what we are now seeing with Secretary Perry is a a blatant effort to uh, interfere with markets when they give an answer he doesn't like and and try to uh, demand a different answer uh, at the expense of customers and competitors, any conservative should oppose that, and many have. Uh, but let me make the broader point, uh, agreeing with you, I think, philosophically, that goes back to our book with Paul Hawken, Natural Capitalism, in 1999, which has a, a pretty thorough critique of what markets are good at, short-term allocation of scarce resources, what they're not good at, like substituting for politics, ethics, or faith, um, and and therefore uh, giving the warning that markets are a splendid servant, uh, a bad master, and a worse religion. So I am not a free market fundamentalist, and I don't think any thoughtful person should be. Markets as a considered tool with transparent and and, uh, wise rules are a very important tool for helping many things run better and not everything uh, is is going to do well uh, just through markets. Healthcare uh, is, as you say, such a complex area with a kind of iron triangle reinforcing uh, antisocial behaviors that I, I think it, it it definitely needs better rules than we have. Okay, um, so before we move on to our next question, I just want to remind everyone uh, of how you can get your question in the queue. Um, so if you would like to ask a question, uh, just dial star six, and then when prompted, press one, and you'll be added to the queue. And uh, when it's your turn, uh, you'll be notified that you're unmuted. And please remember, in that case, uh, to unmute your own phone if, you, if, you've, if, you've, if you've metered the line on your end as well. Um, so with that, we'll move on to our next question from a 718 area code. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Lonnie Clark, and I'm the host of a radio show that's on the Internet called the Age of Fission Radio Show. I interviewed Kai Hushka yesterday from Seldef. And I asked him this question, and I want to ask this gentleman also, because I heard him say he wants 
not just to count the carbon, but also the dollars. Missing in all this conversation is the human cost and cost of nature. Uh, we're, nature has a value, just like dollars, and we as a species have a value. And I'm sort of new to the, quote, anti-nuclear uh, awareness movement. Let me just put it to you that way. I had no idea before Fukushima that we were in such dire straits concerning the profundity of nuclear waste. It is a catastrophic event going on. Uh, it's almost like every month there's something new. This week we had North Korea talking about their uh, nuclear bomb test. So uh, there's no cost to hum humanity in any of this, and there's no conversation. It's always about the dollars or about the carbon. What do you say to that? Why is of humanity course. left out of it? Uh, well, yeah, if you... If you have a chance to read my my writings on this topic over the last half century, you'll you'll find because I started early, you'll you'll find a great deal of material about uh, other uh, issues with nuclear energy and other sources. Uh, and indeed, uh, I wrote several books on nonproliferation. I've been very active in that area for decades, uh, and. Uh, the philosophically, of course, uh, I would I would put uh, human and indeed biospheric uh, needs and concerns ahead of narrow economic ones. I I was I didn't mean to minimize those at all. I just yeah, but was trying, never but I was just, I was just trying to frame arguments in the way that will be heard by those who think they are making narrow economic decisions and are trying to make better ones within that box. Uh, but of course, there, as my previous remark about markets implies, there is a great deal more in the world uh, than dollars. And uh, the most of the things that uh, we really care about as human beings are priceless. Well, no, I have to say, I think that they have a financial value. How much, A, are we spending on cancer treatment and all the catastrophic diseases that are happening because of chemical and coal, all the pollution that we're having to deal with as human beings, and the industry that's built out of it? I, for me, I think we need to suggest that we shift our focus from nuclear power plants, getting energy from it, to figuring out how to remediate it and create a whole scientific financial world where people can make a lot of money fixing the earth because that is the market. That's where the market is going to go. And it, in terms of the, the leaning on the markets, you, we forget the greed factor because leaning on the markets has never really quite worked because of that. Well, Markets were meant to be greedy, not fair, and efficient, not sufficient. They don't tell you how much is enough. Uh, and uh, they will, in general, not make you a better person or tell you the, the purpose of a human being. That's not their function. That's, that's why I describe them in almost mechanistic terms as a tool. They're not an end in themselves. They're not a purpose. They're a very good tool. 
which, like any tool, can be used well or badly. It can cut both ways. You need to be really careful. It's got sharp edges. Uh, and I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, my, my, uh, but my earlier remarks were specifically for people who want to make an economic argument to economic decision makers who may or may not care or be legally able to count important out-of-market or, or uh, non-monetized factors in their decision-making. But, but they are monetized. Away. That's my point here, is they are monetized. We oh, can yeah, monetize and they're, they're paid by somebody else. They need else. to be they're, added into I think, I think, frankly, it, the conversation has to shift that in. No offense. I'll end here, but I appreciate your conversation. Yeah, and I, yeah thank you. Like I appreciate but, yours, and and if you if you go back to that natural capitalism book uh, with Paul Hawken in '99, you'll find it's it's not about internalizing externalities, which is what you just described. That's an important thing to do, of course. Uh, if you have larcenous costs, as Garrett Hardin called them, that are paid by other people at other places or at other times, uh, you aren't going to uh, get a a correct choice in in markets. Uh, mm -hmm. or correct decisions, uh, but rather natural capitalism is about behaving as if uh, we knew what nature and people are worth uh, without having to know or, or signal their value. There's a different way of doing business that will still lead to sound decisions in the framework you describe, and I'd, I think you'd, you'd, you might find that a, a very interesting construct because I think it's it's rather steadily taking over business thinking. It it makes sense, it makes money, uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of industries are doing very well following the precepts of what we call natural capitalism. But that's a whole other conversation. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Lonnie. Uh, so we'll move on to our next question. Um, this is a person without a caller ID, so um, rely on you to know that you've been unmuted. Hello? Hello, oh, we can hear you. Oh, yes, hi. This is uh, Nancy Morris from Seattle. I just wanted to make a comment and partial actual question. I have concerns about advocates who are, all of us actually, who want a you know, integrated renewable energy future, but sometimes are caught up in false solutions and false narratives. And, uh, and this is in regard to the events metering infrastructure movement and smart meters, that actually if you investigate it deeply, you'll find that it's actually hindering and not helping us move into an integrated energy future. And I want to bring people's attention to the work of Timothy Schleckley, who's an uh, internationally recognized smart grid policy expert, getting smarter about the smart grid, uh, org and his paper on green electricity or green money. I think if people actually look into this deeper, we'll see that we're wasting millions of dollars on this particular type of technology, and unfortunately there are a lot of false narratives about it. And I was wondering if you might comment to that, please. Uh, I don't think we can get into that here. It's a very rich and complex conversation. Uh, and it may actually get mooted to a considerable extent by other developments. As of today, 
our, our many utility consortium worldwide has opened app writing in what is called blockchain, uh, which is a uh, it's the technology behind Bitcoin, but it's a cryptographic set of techniques that would enable you, for example, to clear markets from the bottom up, to balance grids from the bottom up, to know exactly the story of your electrons so that you know how they were generated and where and by whom and so on. So you can make more informed choices than when they all look the same color. Uh, it, it, would, it enables grids to run very differently and the, that technology is going to roll out starting early next uh, early 2019 so uh, there's there's a much larger ecosystem around smart meters uh, and smart grids and smart grids are a very uh, fuzzy term it can mean different things to different people depending on what they want somebody else to pay for or what benefits they can tangibly provide so I, I, I'm sorry we can't get into it here. It's a big subject, and I, I think the answers are not clear-cut. It depends very much on where you are, how your grid works, how your grid could evolve, and you're fortunate in in, the, in Seattle to uh, have a, a a very good municipal utility and a lot of smart people in the region with a long history, <coughs> particularly uh, with energy efficiency uh, throughout the Northwest. So. I'm glad you're on the case, and uh, I, I would just uh, add there, there's a great deal of complexity and a lot of arguments both ways on the issues you raise. Okay. Well, thank you for the discussion. Thank you. Great. Um, so I think we're we're coming up on the end of our time tonight, and um, you know, kind of, I wanted to take the you know the the host prerogative to ask a final question, and then. Um, and then hopefully, you know, get any of your final thoughts, Amory. Um, so, you know, the, the, the COP23 Global Climate Conference is starting next week. Um, this is you know, really going to be where, uh, you know, the world's nations get together to start figuring out the rules of the road for how the Paris Agreement is going to be implemented and, you know, has such huge implications for, you know, for our whole energy future. You know, I think probably even irregardless of, um, you know, of, of what the Trump administration decides to do, there's there's so much political will at the state and local level in the U.S. to to move forward with you know with with meeting Paris, uh, regardless of, of of what the Trump administration does. Um, what 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 are your thoughts on on the on the cli on the climate conference next week, and and what do you hope to see come you know come out of these uh, you know come out of the, the Paris Agreement? Well, I I think we all uh, hope and expect to see a. Uh, reinforcement uh, of the Paris goals, uh, some good news about implementation. Uh, it's a little early to have a count in the United States of whether uh, without uh, uh, official national adherence, federal adherence to the Paris Agreement, we will get same, less, or more uh, carbon reduction, my guess is at least as much as we would have had without it. Uh, and in fact, we are part of a, an underway project to add up the state, uh, municipal, other local, civil society, and private sector uh, greenhouse gas reductions, and then 
take out the multiple counting, that's the hard part, and see what it adds up to. And my intuition is it'll probably add up to about as much as or possibly a bit more than we were going to get uh, from uh, government to government uh, kind of uh, adherence to Paris Agreement. And I, I think it was very clear, I've heard from people who are in Marrakesh when, when uh, Mr. Trump made his announcement, that uh, actually it, it really galvanized the rest of the world. And as in, in other spheres, uh, much of the world seems to have moved on past the United States and recognized that we don't have the sort of government that they are used to doing business with. Uh, and uh, our government is not functional in the ways that they're used to. It certainly doesn't speak with one voice uh, on climate or other issues. And uh, they are working around it and doing what is in their and, and others' interests, uh, regardless of the U.S. position. Likewise, in the marketplace, uh, China is doing extremely well as the world leader in efficiency of renewables. Uh, those of you who've looked up Reinventing Fire China at RMI.org will notice that their government uh, best energy agency concluded, and this is, this is their conclusion, not foreigners telling China what to do, that China could practically by 2050 uh, get seven times more work from each unit of energy and 13 times uh, more from each unit of fossil carbon and save three trillion dollars in the process. They are uh, going full bore down that track. Uh, India is making remarkable shifts as well to renewables efficiency. We're working hard there on mobility uh, with the government of India and very impressed with how that's going and the private sector stepping up rapidly. I think the, the trends are uh, remarkably encouraging on those kinds of fronts, uh, and we are seeing uh, uh, kind of last-ditch efforts by incumbents overtaken by the market to try to turn things to their advantage while they control certain levers of political power but it, I, I think their efforts to resist overwhelming and global market forces uh, will not uh, be uh, it will, will not be much uh, weakened by local political aberrations such as we we see at the moment in, in our policy. Uh, so I uh, I think we all have a lot of work to do. I don't want to suggest we should just kick back and let things take their course and not be informed and active citizens. That is vital to getting the kind of future we, we want. Uh, <clears throat> but if we take that responsibility, we, we should be encouraged that we have a very strong economic uh, wind at our back and uh, that the private sector uh, is uh, increasingly taking real leadership in both practical market actions and, and policy discussions uh, to make climate protection the, the uh, uh, norm in 
behavior and, and expectation of how a responsible business behaves. Great. Well, thank you, Amory. I really, really appreciate your taking the time to, you know, to, to walk us through these issues tonight and, and, uh, and, and really appreciate your point of view on, on all of this. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining. Great. And thanks to, uh, thanks to everyone uh, who, uh, who attended and participated tonight. Um, hope this has been as informative and engaging for you as it has been, uh, has been for me as the, as the person on the other end of the line. Um, and uh, hope that, uh, that, uh, that everyone is uh, you know, submitting your comments to, to, to FERC and paying attention to other, uh, you know, other opportunities to take action um, to, you know, to, to stop this, uh, this proposal for the, for the coal and nuclear bailout. Um, and also uh, hope that everyone's paying attention to what's, to, to what's happening in, um, in Bonn at the climate conference next week. As I mentioned before, uh, NEARS is working with an international coalition called Don't Nuke the Climate uh, to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that the implementation of the climate treaty is a clean one and doesn't involve uh, more, uh, you know, more promotion of nuclear power. Um, and if you'd like to support that effort, uh, you know, please uh, go, to our, uh, go to our campaign website. That's www.don'tnuketheclimate.org or to uh, NEARS' website, www.nears.org. Um, and, you, and if you're so inclined uh, to help support the campaign uh, to make sure that it can be successful, uh, you'll find the links to our crowdfunding campaign there as well. Um, and uh, please, if you have any feedback about this conversation or any of our other work, uh, don't hesitate to get in touch with us um, through, either of those, uh, through either of those websites. Uh, I hope everyone has a good night and uh, and hope to hope you'll join us again soon.